As I mentioned a moment ago, we are finally to the beginning of Ecclesiastes after a, a few weeks of kind of preparation sermons, laying some groundwork for us so that we might have a foundation on which to build as we work our way through this book of Old Testament wisdom. Today we look at Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 through 11. One of the enduring memories of my childhood is watching The Wizard of Oz with my family. Back in those days, you know, it was only on once per year. Kids, you might be amazed by this, but we only had three or four TV channels. And we didn't have DVD players or streaming or other such things. We could only watch the shows when they came on. The Wizard of Oz was on once per year, and and we watched it and enjoyed it as a family. You know, we have all kinds of opportunities that through our ingenuity, through our abilities, through our hard work, through our dedication of resources that we have now developed so that we can enjoy things that that we didn't once enjoy. Uh, We live in an ever-increasingly materialistic age, materialistic in the sense that, that we're more concerned about uh, the, the work that's necessary to gain money to buy things, to have enjoyment, but also materialistic in the sense that, that I find that increasingly people seem to believe that the material world is all that there is, that there's nothing beyond that, that what we see in the here and now is, is all that we have for which to live. Ecclesiastes in general, and and this passage in specific, I think serve as sort of a toto to pull back the curtain on the illusion that we have. It's pulled back and, and the great and powerful Oz of materialism is kind of shown for what it actually is. All it's presumed power, its its boasted ability, its its hopes and its dreams that it promises are shown to be emptied and dashed and devastated. And we are left to wonder where true meaning rests. This is the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Before we look at the first 11 verses, let's take a moment and ask that God would bless us so that we might better understand his word. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would now illumine our eyes, give us hearts that understand, help us to know your truth, to not just seek simple answers and and easy answers and 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 the, the simplest way to go, but rather let us seek after truth as you have given it to us. Let us seek after true meaning and, and true value, that which can ultimately only be found in you. We pray that you would show that to us today and that it would just lay hold of our hearts that we might lay out our lives in accordance with your will. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 through 11. This is the inspired word of God. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It is already in the ages, it has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word, which, inspired by God, is our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. As I mentioned a moment ago, the last few weeks have been spent laying a foundation for this sermon series. And now we, we finally get to Ecclesiastes. And, and this sermon, this, this text, serves as kind of an introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a, it's, it's a little bit different in how we're going to go through it than, than the normal coverage of a passage because, because it is kind of pointing us toward the whole message of the, the book as a whole, and it's an introduction. But, but I, I said it last week, and I'll say it again this week, in case you missed it or in case you've forgotten or, or just in case you need to be reminded. We, as people, like control. We don't like things to be out of control. We like to have things in control and all the better if we're the ones controlling it. Right? That's why people consult horoscopes and, and go to fortune tellers, psychics and the like. It's scary when we have no idea what lies ahead of us. No, no idea what's coming up around the next turn. And, and because that is scary, when, when anything can happen, we, we want to know what that is going to be. Because if we know what is coming up, or at least think we know what is coming up, it's a little bit more comfortable for us. It's, it's more as if things are under control. Well, far more, though, than, than information or control, what we truly need is wisdom. And Ecclesiastes offers us wisdom. It offers the wisdom of God to us as the people of God. But it does so from a different perspective than one might guess. 
uh, and speaking to the people of God, you'd think that there'd be that shared perspective, as I was talking about right before our unison scripture reading. Everything's just from that perspective of the people of God. But, but no, he, he, he instead chooses to speak from our shared humanity, a broader base that we can all relate to, regardless of where we are, where we come from. And so the basic thrust of this book is to get us to Consider that certain things are true about life, regardless of what we believe and regardless of how we behave, regardless of where or even when we live. And so the author begins with a superscription at the beginning, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David King in Jerusalem, this term, the preacher, is a phrase that, that he uses to describe himself throughout this book. He never once says his name, but I think we can understand that the author is to be taken as Solomon. Uh, we see there that he says he's the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. He talks about his wisdom that's been given to him and how it surpasses the wisdom of other kings, much as we have already read that the wisdom of Solomon was. We're supposed to understand, I believe, that this is who the author is. Now, there is some debate among scholars. They say, well, he doesn't say Solomon, and maybe it's somebody else, or, or there's different reasons given. I don't want to go too far down that rabbit trail, because, because I think really regardless of who actually wrote this, and I personally believe it, it was Solomon, but even if it wasn't, I don't think that's really all that important, because whoever it was that wrote this book, under the inspiration of God, wrote it in such a way as to have the readers understand that it was Solomon who was speaking to them. And so that's how we're supposed to take this. That's how we're supposed to understand this. God wants us, wants us to hear the voice of Solomon in these words. Verse 2 gives us the theme of the whole book. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities all is vanity. This preacher who is speaking to us takes this verse here as, as his text, as it were, and, and he spends the rest of, of the book kind of expounding upon it. It, it becomes a sermon as a whole book, perhaps. And, and in this verse, we see what it's all about, this idea of vanity of vanities. All is vanities. If this is what it's all about, then it's pretty important that we understand that one main word that's repeated five times in that verse, right? Vanity. What exactly does he mean by this? It's actually five times here, but it's 38 times throughout the book. It's all over in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, vanity. What does he mean by this? The, the Hebrew word, hebel, is is given here, and it, and it literally means vapor. And so, so I think what we need to understand about this, when he says vanity, he's not talking about vanity in the sense of, of, of a pride or vain glory that we might have, where we, we look at ourselves in a mirror and say, boy, don't I look good today. Not that kind of vanity, so much as a vanity like, like the vain efforts that we might have, we say, all our efforts were in vain, right? There's a futile uh, a sense to it, a, a, an inability. I think that's the idea that stands behind this idea that this, this 
vapor, this vanity. I, I was thinking about this as, as I was doing a word, kind of the word study and this idea of it being a, a vapor, and I thought of, of the toaster that we have in our kitchen. I thought of this toaster because, because and I see my wife over there chuckling, um, every time we make toast in our house, the smoke alarm goes off. Every time, regardless. There's nothing you can do about it. We've, we've taken apart the toaster, cleaned it out, scrubbed it, done everything we could. Every time we make toast, the smoke alarm goes off. You can't even see any smoke coming out of it. There's nothing there. It's, it's invisible to the eye. There's nothing you can do. We, we can put it straight under the, the exhaust fan, turn the exhaust fan on. Still, smoke detector goes off every time. Our efforts to stop it are, are futile. We can't grab those, that smoke. We can't even see it. I, I want to just you know, get out and stop it. But we can't. The efforts are completely in vain. I thought about that as I was thinking about this vanity of vanities. You know, there's a, a phrase that's used nine times in Ecclesiastes to kind of modify it. Striving after wind. And that, I think, is a, a good picture of what, what this idea is of vanity of vanities. We can't deny that the wind is a real thing, but, but where does it come from? I, I don't know. Where does it, I mean, you can't trace where, where is it going? Well, I, you know, we can't find where it ends. <laughs> can you see the wind? Well, we can see its impact, but we can't see the wind itself. It, it's striving after the wind. Something that is futile. We cannot accomplish it. And this is what Ecclesiastes says about life. We can't put our hands around it and grab hold of it. We can't wrestle it down and be in control. Sometimes we try to simplify things and we have, we have our, our superficial smiles and our trite platitudes that we try to just say, oh, it's all fine. We have silly schemes by which we try to control our lives. But when we, when we rest in these things, we really are either lying to others or lying to ourselves because life is not quite so simple. It's better for us to have a more realistic view, the view that the preacher has here in Ecclesiastes. And then we say, where do we go from here? Just last week, we looked at the fall in Genesis and in that passage, we saw how, how man sought to gain control of things and fell from grace. Creation fell with him. And so we see that man has always tried to grasp for a control that is not his to take. And as a result, the whole creation is broken. Romans 8.20, Paul tells us that the creation was subjected to futility. And that word futility, actually, in, in the, the word he uses there to describe that in the Greek text is the same word that is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for this word vain here in Ecclesiastes. That's not very encouraging, is it? Everything would be out of our control but if that is the case, we must find an alternative. We must find an alternative to wrestling control away from God. And ultimately, this is the kind, kind of the, the lesson of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. 
as the preacher considers man's various schemes for control. So in verse 3, he says, what, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And I, I just want to very quickly point out that we have three, three main phrases here that are used, three main terms or phrases that, that we see pop up throughout Ecclesiastes that are important ones. First of all is gain, the ideas of, of a profit or an advantage that, that is gained. And, and this is used throughout the book many times. Uh, second is toil, right? This, again, I think it's 23 times this phrase will pop up in Ecclesiastes, this idea of toil. Not just work, because work is, is a good thing. We don't always think of it in those terms, do we? But we must remember that when God created Adam and, and placed him in the garden, he placed him there to work. This was before the fall, before things had, had gotten bad. All was good, and Adam was working, and it was very good. But with the fall, that work became difficult. It became burdensome. It became toil. And finally, a third phrase, under the sun, some 28 times, shows up in Ecclesiastes, this phrase, under the sun. I think that's as opposed to in heaven, right? That's kind of the, the opposite there. You can either be in heaven with the Lord or under the sun. The idea is that under the sun is how things are in this broken and fallen world. It's not the way things are supposed to be, but it is the way that things are. Are. So he asks, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Things are completely out of control, out of our control. But that does not mean that they are completely out of control, right? God is in control. There's a sovereign who is in control, but, but sometimes that's really shallow comfort, isn't it? When you're faced with tragedy, when you're faced with difficulty, when you're faced with real hardship, Right? Somebody comes along and says, well, don't worry, God's in control. But the pain that you feel is still very real. The worries that you have are very real. The, the sorrow that you have is still very real. It doesn't make those things go away. And sometimes we, we just want to ask, but why? Okay, I understand that God is in control, but, but why are things happening this way? Why is he doing things this way? At the very least, we feel like if we could understand the why, that we could, we could deal with it a little bit better, but, but we don't always get the why. You know, we just heard it sung by the choir earlier today. This wasn't part of my plan that, that this would be what they would sing, but I found it interesting how they sang this. Trial dark, trials dark on every hand, and we cannot understand all the ways that God would lead us to that blessed promised land. You know, and... and they said, by and by, we'll understand it better. And, and we will one day, I think, understand it better. We might not understand it perfectly, though, even, even when the Lord takes us home. I don't know. But we come to a crossroads. We do, where we have to realize we're not in control. And God is. And we don't have access to his reason we have to make a decision. The decision is either we can, we can reject the idea that God is good and sovereign and loving and go our own way trying to gain control. Or we can trust 
that he is good and sovereign and loving and yield to him and his control and walk, as Paul puts it, by faith and not by sight. It's the same question that's faced millennia upon millennia of people. A generation goes and a generation comes, verse 4 tells us, but the earth remains forever. Each generation is replaced, right? You know, the generation here will move on and another generation will move in. And they'll have all the same questions that we have had, just as the generations that came before us had the same questions and issues we do. That's the cyclical nature of life. He says the sun rises, the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. He says, starts over. It's a cycle. It rises, sets, back to where it rises, sets. The wind, the same. It, it blows around from one way, blows around from the other way, returns, and on its circuit, the wind returns. The streams run to the sea, and, and just think of how long the streams have been running to the sea. And yet the sea is not full, he says. He's not really talking about hydrological principles here. He's just talking about the nature of life. How things happen again and again and again. And that's just the way it is. And so we, like people for millennia before us, ask, can I trust God? And if so, can I be sure of it? How can I be sure of it? All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. He acknowledges that life under the sun is broken. We can't find fulfillment here. There's no explanation that will ultimately be sufficient to terminate our longings. There's nothing we can behold with our eyes that will leave us completely satisfied. Just consider what the eye can behold. We can look up at a star-filled sky, beautiful and sparkling. We can, we can look at the sun setting in the oranges and the pinks and the purples in the sky, just glorious in their beauty. We can come to Niagara Falls or to the Grand Canyon and we can see them and have our breath taken away. We walk away longing to see it again, longing for more, never completely satisfied because there's nothing in this earth that is completely satisfying. Nothing under the sun. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. You see, this is where man always will return to this fact. Winston Churchill once said that those who fail to learn from the past are doomed to re repeat it. But the preacher here takes it a step further, doesn't he? He says, regardless of whether you learn from the past or not, you're doomed to repeat it again and again and again. It's there a thing of which it's said, see, this is new? It's already been in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. He says, you know, uh, of, just think of it. I mean, this is just common sense, right? Of all the people that have ever lived, what percentage of them do we remember, right? Hardly any. Hardly any. And... A hundred years from now, it will be forgotten that we were here on this morning. Quite possibly 50 years from now, or 25 years from now, or for some of us a week from now, maybe tomorrow. The meaning cannot be found in this world under the sun. 
So we need wisdom. We need to know where to look. And so we look to the wisdom of God. We want to have simple, direct, black and white rules that will lead us in the right way. So we take verses out of Proverbs and we put them on our coffee cups or we crochet them and put them in a frame up on the wall so that they can make us feel comfortable. But, but that's not really the way that wisdom, true wisdom, works. You see, because we, we find a verse like Proverbs 13, 21 that says, disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with the good. And we say, well, great. I just need to avoid sin and disasters won't pursue me, and, and I just need to be righteous, I just need to walk with God, and, and good things will happen to me. But the problem with that is, I've lived life long enough to know that even when you're walking with God, sometimes bad things happen to you. And on the other hand, sometimes when you're not walking with God, good things happen to you. That's not what that proverb said was supposed to happen. It's almost as if there are exceptions to the rules. That's the way wisdom literature works. We need to understand there, there are general rules, general patterns that are true, but there are exceptions to the rules as well. Consider Job, right? Job who was, was, was befallen with all kinds of tragedy and his friends came around him and, and they just said to him, hey, Job, What's the unconfessed sin in your life? Because obviously all these rotten things are happening to you. You must have done something wrong. You must be responsible. It's, it's almost as if they knew this rule of Proverbs 13, 21, but they have no category that allows for exceptions to the general rule. Right? But, but there are exceptions and, and, and seeming contradictions, as it were. You know, we all know know the rules, right? Right. If we're going to spell something and there's an I and an E, which letter goes first? I don't know. Oh, it's, oh, I know. It's I before E. Except after C, or when sounding like A as in neighbor and way, right? So, so I need to know the rule, I before E, but I need to know that there are exceptions to the rule, and there's actually other exceptions other than the exceptions. Well, that's another point altogether. See, but, but we need to have a category for these exceptions or these contradictions or such. I, I, you know, I was thinking about these contradictions and it brought to mind the, the musical, musical Hamilton that's been all the rage the last number of years here. There's, there's a, a line where, where Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton are, are talking with each other about this new constitution that they're, they're trying to formulate, that they're trying to come up with, that they're trying to, to fight for. And, and Hamilton's trying to convince Burr to support this constitution. And Burr says, the constitution's a mess. And Hamilton says, so it needs amendments. And Burr says, it's full of contradictions. And Hamilton says, so is independence. True. <laughs> and just like Hamilton, our preacher in Ecclesiastes does not shy away from the all-too-present seeming contradictions involved in life under the sun. He's willing to wrestle with them. He's willing to deal with them. And I love how one commentator put it when comparing the wisdom of, of Ecclesiastes with, say, the wisdom of Proverbs. He put it this way. He said, if Proverbs is like math, mostly dealing in equations in which one thing adds up to equal another, then Ecclesiastes is like music, all mood and melody and tone. 
If Proverbs is like meteorology giving us indicators so as to predict certain outcomes, then Ecclesiastes is like the actual weather, fickle and unpredictable in its ability to rant with storms or breathe easy with a mid-morning breeze. In Proverbs, a good man plus God's love and wisdom equals a good life. In Ecclesiastes, a good man plus God's love still dies like the beast or the fool. In Proverbs, wisdom gives us eyes to recognize the storm clouds and what to do in response. In Ecclesiastes, death is a piece of tornado from which no proverbial basement can shelter us. See, it's not that the Bible actually has real contradictions per se, but, but especially within the wisdom literature like Ecclesiastes, there, there may be exceptions to the general rules. And sometimes things happen and we're just not given reasons. So what we need to do is remember the bedrock principles. And the most foundational bedrock principle is this. We, as the people of God, have a loving God who is sovereign and who is committed to his purposes and to our well-being as his children. And that there is nothing that is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are the bedrock foundational principles we need to remember. We need to remember that not even our sin, not even our unfaithfulness to him is able to separate us from his love. That's what the cross tells us. That's the essence of the gospel. That though we were enemies of God's, though we fought against him and raised the fist and shook it at him, though we spat in his face, he still loved us and made us his own and welcomes us in and loves us still. There's no expense that he will not pay. We know that from the cross, right? We know that from, from the brutality of the cross wherein his son, our Lord, Paid the ultimate price for our sin. And if he did that, then we can know that even in the face of difficulties, even in the face of trials, even in the face of uncertainty and harrowing lack of control, that we are okay in the hands of our loving God. I hope that we'll learn that from Ecclesiastes, that we'll see that throughout. One commentator in closing puts it this way. He says, what the author intends to teach us is that real biblical wisdom is founded on the honest acknowledgement that this world's course is enigmatic, that most, if not all, of what happens is quite inexplicable, incomprehensible to us, and quite out of our control. See, we go about doing all these things, working, living, and ultimately we are not in control, but God is. But here's one quick note in closing by which we can be encouraged. Though our work, if it has earthly goals, 
burdensome toil that leads to nothing, gains us nothing, and ends in no profit whatsoever. This is not true of our work if our work is in Christ Jesus and to the glory of God. For Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. So apart from me, you can do nothing. And we read from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And furthermore, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For Jesus proclaims, I am the resurrection and the life. And we know that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And the Christ returns saying, I am making all things new. If we are in Christ, our work can indeed have eternal import and impact. How much time and energy do we spend on the kingdom of God? How much time and energy do we spend on the kingdoms of earth? Let us consider those things as we go through our study. And even as we live out our lives under the sun, let us see to it that we are more concerned about our heavenly citizenship than our earthly. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Lord, help us to found our lives not in the things of this world, not in our own control or in our own desires, but let us control or let us found our our life in your control, in your sovereign love, and in Christ Jesus, who is the solid rock. It's in his name we pray. Amen.